pair of gunmen walked into the school this morning and then opened fire on their fellow students and teachers. Here is the latest. SWAT teams have been clearing the school this evening. I literally felt like I was, you know, hanging off a cliff because I just had so much, such a rush of adrenaline um, afterwards. I didn't sleep that night. Currently, they believe upwards of 25 people may have lost their lives. Still unclear how many of those were students, how many of those were teachers. Because of the dangerous situation, there may still be bombs inside the school. So police are wrapping up for tonight and they will continue to clear the school tomorrow morning. The morning after Columbine left the community reeling, still unsure of what happened and who was dead. Um, and then the next day started up and still trying to figure out who's missing and I don't think they released it until that following night, uh, maybe Wednesday night at the earliest they started trying to release some names and trying to find out who and then so it was Thursday morning. It is going to be a memorial service at Light of the World Catholic Church at 7 p.m. tonight. That is at 10303306 West Bowles, Littleton. How did the community of Littleton deal with such an unspeakable tragedy? As the days and weeks go by, how does anyone make sense of something so senseless? Well, at first, it was just trying to find out who, who made it and who didn't. Um, and then as we got the bad news of who didn't, then it was, um, you know, it took a different tone. And, you know, knowing that you're going to have to go to their funerals and, um, and see their families. I'm reporter Kyle Newman. And I'm Amy Brothers, a multimedia producer. This is Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media, a three-part podcast series from the Denver Post. In episode two, the follow-up, we'll talk about what the news conversation was like in the days and months after Columbine. And we'll explore some of the ways the event affected the people who were there. How did the search for what happened create false and even harmful storylines? Evan Todd was on the football team. On that morning, he and a friend were avoiding running lunchtime drills with their coach. The pair decided to hole up in the library to get some classwork done when the shooting began. All of a sudden we heard um, some loud explosions outside and uh, at first, we thought it was uh, a car wreck, um, was my first thought. Uh, I saw some smoke coming up, and I looked out, and I, I saw where the smoke was coming from, but there was no, you know, no cars touching or any collision damage that you would expect. There was just smoke in between a couple cars, so it was a little confusing. From the library window? From the library window, looking out, and, uh, um, and then heard another explosion and some smoke and that's when things started to you know um seem really odd and uh then we heard the gunshots in another part of the school football coach andy lowry had a planning period when the shooting started the fire alarm went off and at first like many people in the school that day he thought it was a senior prank and he left the building he showed me where during a tour of the school it wasn't until he was outside when the school resource officer yelled at him that he realized something was truly wrong. So what's going on? And he said there was gunfire. 
you know, side of the building. So when I came out, he, I think, had just exchanged gunfire with these guys that were coming in these doors, and I was just You're coming out, just yeah, 50 feet away, and I don't know, seconds, minutes, whatever. But you know, as I came out, they chased back in here. It's crazy because you have no idea where, who, how many. You know, you speculate that I mean, you, you just don't have no idea. And at that point, it would be like, you know, you would never suspect anybody in your school doing it. So Lowry came around the back of the school, past a shed near the baseball field. Came around the corner on that west side, and there's a young man laying. He was shot. He had blood and blood soaked jeans, and he looked up at me and kind of had a you know, his, you know, kind of face was tore up a little bit. And um, so he looked up at me. And so at that point, you kind of stopped. How did he get shot on that side? And don't know people from the park or how it was going. So just everything's racing. Still never even heard any ambulance at that point. You know, they're just, I didn't hear anything. Neil was down there. And so my only thought, I mean, it was pre-cell phone. So... Right. You know, I, my thought was go call or go get help or do something. In the library, Evan and the other students tried to take cover under tables and desks. When the shooters got inside, they started killing execution style. Then they arrived at Evan. One of them saw me, pulled the chair out, kneeled down and put guns to my head and said, why shouldn't we kill you? And I told him, look, I've been good to you and everyone in the school and you know it and he uh, started to stand back up, lowered his gun, turned to the other one and said, you can kill him if you want. And they said some things back and forth and um, decided to go to the, the commons, our cafeteria, and they left. It's hard to imagine what it would take for a school and a community to heal from a tragedy like this and the leadership required to get that healing started. Coach Lowry described gathering his players and fellow coaches the day after the attack just so they could all be together. One parent volunteered their home and support poured in from across the community and beyond. Didn't know how to process it, you know, and I think it took time afterwards and I think time heals and, you know, God, God, you can just you can just look back and know that you know God was with us all the way through this His healing hand with all of us and just the amount of just miracles that every kid that made it to the hospital all survived, reconnecting as a community and and just the healing part and just all the blessings that have come from there, just the amount of the relationships that we've that we've developed from people from all over the country and, and world that reached out and you know all of a sudden you have friends and support and so like the outpouring of love was um uh inspiring and motivating because uh you know you're going through life and you're wondering what's this all about and you see people who are reaching out to you and thinking about you and you know that um, those thoughts and prayers that people say don't matter they do matter they do and um and i'm a witness to it because um, it was motivating to know that um, when someone's trying to kill you, there's millions of other people who are thinking about you and want you to want, want something better for you. Columbine shocked a nation because it seemed so incomprehensible that kids would kill kids. 
that they would kill their own classmates and people who they knew. In the weeks following the shooting, the narrative on most TV stations and in the pages of many newspapers shifted to why this happened. Former Denver 7 reporter Mitch Jelnicker noticed the difference in the conversations following the Oklahoma City bombing versus Columbine. I covered the Oklahoma City bombing, and I was there that day living in Oklahoma City. And there was this sense there when this happened, this, this general sense from people, Oklahomans, it, it was like, well, who did this to us? Who would come in here and do this to us? Who are these people? Why would they do this to us? We didn't do anything. And, it, and, and so they immediately assumed it was some foreign terrorist. Of course, we later found out the two primary people weren't. In Columbine, in the hours afterward, it was like, oh, it, it was students, so it's one of us. Then all the finger pointing started. Well, it's it's the you know this political party or that political party. It's the parents. It's the teachers. It's the principal. It's the cops. It's the media. It's society. It's everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else because they they, they think people need answers, and you're not going to get. You may not get those sometimes years until after a tragedy like that. As we talked about in part one of this podcast, there was no real playbook for covering shootings like Columbine. Things like this just didn't happen. It was too big, too horrific, too senseless. In the weeks following the shooting, the desire to know that why behind the attack became a driving force in the national conversation. Denver Post reporter Kieran Nicholson was there the day of the shooting, and he was part of a team that kept on the story in the months that followed. I think a lot of people... Uh, certainly a lot of reporters and editors, I think they were looking at not so much to let uh, the killers off the hook, but um, again, trying to understand this. How, do, how did we get here? And, and I, I, you know, that's hard to fault. I mean, I think it's just being, being thorough and trying to be explanatory and, and trying to report news. It, it was a difficult situation. From my reporting from my in-depth story on the effect of the shooting on Columbine Athletics, I can tell you that the bullies made them do it storyline came down on the school's athletes and most specifically the football players. A Washington Post headline from the time read, Dissecting Columbine's Cult of the Athlete, and even the Denver Post ran an editorial earlier that spring with basically the same gist. Looking back on that day 20 years later and everything that came after it, Both Evan Todd and Andrew Lowry said they felt misrepresented after the shooting and helpless to correct what they believed was a false narrative, that bullies had driven the killers to murder. I've never been an angry person my whole life, but I was pretty bitter and angry for about the next six or eight months. Um, At the media? Yeah, at the media, yeah, absolutely. And we told back then, it it was... the media perpetuated it. They never blamed those two. They blamed everybody else but those two. I think it's important to back up and take a wide look at where this information came from. Reporters didn't just like create it out of thin air. Remember how chaotic it was that day? Yeah, and as reporters interviewed emotional students frantically leaving the school, details jumbled together into a telephone game thread. And out of that came the bullies made them do it storyline. Some students said the killer said, can the jocks please stand up in the library? And this helped give the bullying narrative its original threads. 
Another example of where this went a little out of control is that the shooters were said to be members of a clique of kids who called themselves the Trenchcoat Mafia. Much was made of the Trenchcoat Mafia, with press accounts claiming that its members were into the occult and Hitler, but little that was said about this turned out to be true. It turns out the shooters weren't part of the Trenchcoat Mafia, even though they were wearing trench coats that day. But kids were saying this coming out of the school, and it was being said over the police radio, and these rumors just came out of the confusion of April 20th. Somebody in a black trench coat with a shotgun just shooting at the school. I don't think we can just look at the media here without the context of society. The community couldn't believe that one of their students would do this. And the media was trying to answer that. Jefferson County Lieutenant Steve Wyant described why the story got so sensationalized. It was the first big mass shooting at a school. And our school was a large metropolitan community where you know, affluent neighborhoods exist, and how in the world could that ever happen here? But once something is out there, it can't come back. So if the media reports on something, it has consequences, especially now in the digital age. So the entire community is reeling from this tragedy, and allegations of a bullying culture at the school compounded the pain that some students were in. Jacqueline Schildkraut literally wrote the book on Columbine. She's an expert on criminology and has extensively studied how the media covered Columbine and the effects that it had. In her book, Columbine, 20 Years Later and Beyond, Lessons Learned from Tragedy, Jacqueline examines the long-term impact of that day. Columbine got blamed a lot, you know, and this was one of the myths that sort of came out of it was, well, it was the school culture that did it. You know, they were bullied, this, that, and the other thing. And while, of course, the bullying myth has been refuted, if you show me a high school in America today or in 1999 that didn't have some element of social hierarchy and bullying, I would have told you that somebody's lying to you because that's part of high school. We all went through it. Not all of us responded to it homicidally. Evan argues the bullying narrative ultimately led a generation to have the wrong conversation about the cause of the shooting. The narrative was these two kids were bullied, and so they went and shot up their school. And that's the message that a lot of kids got for a generation. Hey, be nice or else they're going to come shoot up your school. You know, and, and don't get me wrong, bullying's completely wrong, and it happens, and it's something we need to address. But the context that we were providing was completely wrong. Um, it really put this, uh, this thought that um, murder is second to bullying in the case of Lowry's football team, he was out to prove his kids had nothing to hide. Columbine took to spring practices that May, held at Chatfield High School, with the collective mindset of head down, mouth shut. The community and their school had stood behind the team over the course of the negative coverage, and that fall, the Rebels responded by winning their first state championship. Columbine posted a 13-1 season, 
won victory for each of the victims, and defeated heavily favored Cherry Creek for the Class 5A crown. It was a title and a season overall that Lowry believes presented the true picture of Columbine, a school and a community with the strength and ability to come together and heal as one unified community that could rise above tragedy. It was, it was tough. It was tough um, for our athletes around here, I think, for a while. For coaches-wise, it was really hard. We were under a microscope, which is okay, I and mean, we had nothing to hide by any means. And, and honestly, that microscope ended up probably proving to everybody else in the media and all over the country who our, who our kids are and what our school is about and what our community is all about. It's, I can't tell you how proud I am. and. Um, He's in somewhat vindicated that they rose to the very top and won a state championship and did it the right way. And the, the people who were paying attention could see what they were made of and showed the rest of the, the, our community, our school, our state, the rest of the world, you know, how you can rise up and triumph over tragedy. Lobs it, open, Connor, touchdown, Rebels lead. And perhaps the most emotional football season, an emotional school year ever for any school, anywhere, has ended incredibly with the Columbine Rebels winning the 1999 state football title, their first ever. I love you, man. The team is chanting MJK for Matthew Joseph Kector, a football player who was killed on April 20th. They dedicated their 1999 title season to him. I think it's hard for people to realize how much attention this got. This was one of the first really big news stories to hit the 24-hour news cycle, and stories had a much longer shelf life 20 years ago. Back then, this story just didn't disappear after a week or a month. Columbine went viral in the 1999 sense. Denver Post reporter Kieran Nicholson remembers how it brought coverage from all across the world. Um, I knew it was a really big story, but when I was spending overnight there, and uh, it's like four in the morning, three or four in the morning, and this taxi cab pulls up. And this woman gets out of the cab, and she's kind of like staggering a little bit, and she looks disoriented and a little lost. And she comes over to us and she starts talking to us. She has a, she's talking English, but she has a heavy accent. And I think she was asking us, you know, is this where Columbine is and, and where is the school? And so we started talking to her. We figured out she was from a newspaper in Paris. And she had, um, from Paris, gone to the airport, flew to the United States, landed in Denver, and went directly to the school. I mean, that's... How, how big of a, a story it was. In Columbine, 20 years later and beyond, Jacqueline cites a story of a reporter stealing a photo off someone's wall, and others were relentless, waiting in front lawns to get people for comment. And former students and teachers I've talked to also described the media staking out Chatfield to try and talk to Columbine students after classes had started up again that spring. In all, it was definitely a lot of over-the-top stuff by some news outlets. For this podcast, we focused on local journalists. Former Denver 7 reporter Mitch Jelnicker said he thought there was some difference between local and national news. 
I know one of the things we elected to do at seven back then, it was in, in the day or so after, was not go start knocking on people's doors and show up on their front lawns because it's just it was just too it's too much. Um, and, and I think that's sometimes where uh, local uh, reporters it might be advantageous for the audience over say national many excellent excellent journalists in national media of all forms, but. They don't live here, um, you know, so they can march up to somebody's lawn and pound on the door because they don't have to face them again. Or they can, um, you know, really press the, the cops or firefighters or whoever it is or whatever kind of scene it is for more information. I, I have to keep working with those people day in and day out. So it may be a little less relentless and a little bit more caring involved. Because we're, you know, we're right down the street from Columbine, where we might know people who have kids there. Uh, so we're much closer to the situation. At the Denver Post on the day of, editors talked about not cold calling families. They used their connections in the community to reach out to victims and their families. Post photographer Sean Stanley talked about this approach. That night, there were not blind knocks on doors made. It was more the first round of contact was made second and third hand, friends of family contacting neighbors to see, uh, basically, we're here, the Post, the media, we're here when the time comes. Now, I think there were some other uh, media outlets that made more aggressive moves, um, but I remember some of that coming about while I was at the uh, Post that evening editing. Um, those conversations were happening about, okay, let me call this minister. Let me call this school person who has an association with, oh, I know somebody who knows somebody. And so subtle means were made um, at first. There are arguments that the media should leave victims and victims' families alone. But from the journalism side, everyone has the right to their own story. We extend that opportunity to victims and their families to share their stories if they want to. Once initial contact was made in the case of Columbine, the Post assigned each reporter to a particular family. That gave the family one point of contact with the newspaper, and as Kieran explained, allowed reporters to build trust and familiarity with their sources in what was obviously a very sensitive situation. The biggest thing with me in, in reporting in Columbine was eventually um, the editors assigned um, certain reporters to different families, and I got um, the DePuder family, and uh, um, Corey DePuder was, was killed at Columbine. I met um, Patricia DePuder, his mom, and, and I met his sister. Um, they were very... Uh, very gracious, and and it and it took a while. Initially, I, I don't know that they um, they wanted to talk, and and I, and I I respected that, but I I kept with it, and eventually um, established a little bit of a relationship. And so you know, just to just to sit down and talk with the parent of a child who had been killed in this in this you know, uh, extraordinary event. Um, uh, I think that really, really um, sticks with me.
As photographer Sean Stanley talked about in the first episode, the journalists who cover school shootings hope and believe their documentation of tragedy will ultimately help memorialize the victims and the difficulty of the event. It's not a it's not a distant thing. Hopefully, there's a piece of humanity that gets translated between the written words and the photographs of that day that can touch people in a very personal way. Uh, you know, they, these aren't distant people. These are our friends and neighbors and and loved ones and children. And um, you know, Columbine has has you know is, is by far not the deadliest school shooting. It's a mark of our time, and it's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to bear witness for that, um, uh, for the public record. And I, and I hold that type of thing very closely. I asked Evan Todd what he hoped people would get out of this podcast, and it was a message of hope. Because even when we had to discuss something as painful as the Columbine tragedies, there can be a light at the end of the conversation. It's unfortunate that these things happen, and, you know, it's, it's also... Um, Every single person on this earth goes through tough times and, you know, tough times do come and they suck, <laughs> and, but you will get through it. You know, there's always no storm lasts forever and uh, just keep pushing through. And when that sunlight comes uh, after the storm, uh, it's, it's better than the sunlight you saw before the storm. Next time on Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media, we explore how covering breaking news has changed. We'll be talking about social media and how it changes the way we think about news, including an analysis of no notoriety and safe to tell. To read more about Columbine High School's 1999 football season, along with complete coverage of the 20th anniversary, including new and archived stories, photos, videos, and more, visit DenverPost.com. Bearing Witness is brought to you by the Denver Post. It's hosted by me, Kyle Newman, and Amy Brothers, and is written by me, Amy, and Katie Rausch, with editing help from Matt Schubert, Patrick Trailer, Matt Sebastian, and Mario Sinelli. Bearing Witness is produced by me, Amy Brothers, and Katie Rausch. We want to give a huge thanks to everyone who is willing to come on this podcast. We know Columbine isn't always easy to talk about. Special thanks to KMGH Denver 7 for the use of their audio from their archival footage. Audio from the 1999 football championship game is by Eric Bloomer, a video journalist at CBS4 News Denver. Thank you. The 911 and police radio tapes were provided by Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. Our music in this episode is by CCH Audio, Audio Earth, and The Musemaker. Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media is available wherever you find your podcasts.